Well, if we uh, we have ten in here right now, if we if we stay at ten, we actually will move. We can move up to the conference room, Pastor Ken's office. If we get more than ten, we actually can't move because it won't see it. But so we'll have to see what happens. But that might be a little bit easier because we're not. Yeah, it is quiet down here. As long as she, you know. Well, that you, comes from my mom, so. <laughs> <laughs> um, so welcome to Foundations. This is the first time the church has offered this this class. So this is uh, kind of the inaugural class on this uh, uh, for this this particular uh, series. If you look at the spiritual growth process, this is kind of the the path that CBC likes everyone to kind of walk through. Uh, as we, as you kind of grow in your, your knowledge of God, uh, and you know, baptism, membership, newcomers orientation, those are kind of the early stages. Uh, newcomers orientation. Hopefully, you guys have already taken that with Pastor Ken. Um, well, newcomers, yeah, newcomers orientation is the one with Pastor Ken. Growth partners is the one-on-one discipleship series. If you haven't done that or would be interested in finding out more information. Uh, that's kind of a, a serious one-on-one discipleship program. They walk through, uh, there's, so all stages of the Christian life, men and women, they'll pair you up with one other person, uh, by, you know, by gender, and then you'll, you'll kind of do this series one-on-one. But that fits hand in hand with what we're doing here with this class foundations. And this class is, uh, you know, kind of the, um, let's put it, the, uh, doctrines and disciplines of the Christian life. So that's how, we're, we're getting to know. And this is kind of the, the quick description of the class. And then moving on, we have how to get the most out of your Bible, which is was offered last semester, uh, last fall. It won't be offered again until next fall. So what they're going to do, they changed the how the uh, these Wednesday night classes are, are going. So how, how to get the most out of your Bible and master plan for, for life are alternating now. So... Master plan for our life is going on right now, and then it won't be offered again for another two years. Uh, every other year, I should say, every other year. Uh, and in the fall, or excuse me, in the winter, we'll be doing um, the uh, practical applicational courses. So this winter, it's going to be a men's and a women's uh, studies, and so everybody will be in that. So if you remember last year, we did it where. It, Going on while these classes were going on, there was like men's fraternity going on. They had women's Bible studies going on on Mondays, uh, so that's going away. And so they'll be doing those kind of things uh, all together in the winter. And then the electives would be kind of the, once you've gone through these courses, uh, which would take you about three years to go through, you're you'd be able to take the electives. So, uh, any questions on that? That's just kind of a quick overview of what. How the, the path that we, we try to get everyone through with these classes. Uh, with this, so we're, as I said, this is the first uh, time the class is offered. Uh, grab a uh, book there. On the... Well, I'm all blue it now, so now we have 11. <laughs> so we can't go, we can't move. So we're, we're here. Um, so this is the first time. So we are, the way the, you can look, if you look at page, uh, I guess it would be Roman numeral three, uh, is the table of contents. And you can see, so each one of the chapters is going to correspond with a week. Uh, there's 12 weeks in this series, uh, in this uh, semester, and each week we'll be going through a particular chapter. So some chapters are shorter than others. But we're going to be pretty much jam-packed as far as the material cover, so we're going to have to kind of be moving quick. That being said, I do want as much as possible to get discussion, questions. So if there's ever something we're covering uh, that is not clear, definitely feel free to ask a question. Uh, If there's something I say that you think is maybe different from what you've heard before, raise that question so we can kind of work it out. Uh, And that's really what we want to do with this class. So we have... The material we have to work through, but I don't want that to take away from the you know discussion that we can uh, potentially have uh, with this class. Uh, and this is kind of this is a little bit different because it is a um, 
its doctrines and disciplines. So a lot of times what you'll take in basic believers classes are usually made up like doctrines. So you kind of study, you know, bibliology, uh, theology proper, uh, Christology, and you kind of follow like a systematic theology outline. This class uh, kind of goes away, does a little bit of that, but also talks about the doctrines or disciplines of the Christian life. So it's more about how these issues show up in your life and how you can actually live them out a little bit more or have and uh, kind of ground you in the Christian life a little bit better than just a straight systematic theology. Um, so turning now to uh, page two. The, the chapter here is laid out pretty nicely. So as you're going to see, there's four kind of topics that we're working through here, uh, four major headings. And it's laid out in a biblical fashion, so you'll kind of understand what I'm saying as we get near the end. So it's going to look at uh, us, that is, it, the headings will be you and God, uh, you and sin, you and Christ, uh, these kind of things, you and salvation. And that's kind of... Um, it's pretty much follows the biblical uh, material itself, the outline that the Bible lays out. So it's going to start with, just like the Bible starts with God, the material we have here, it's going to start with God and kind of move forward. Uh, and that'll make a little more sense as we, as we get going here with the material. Um, one of the really important things, and so as we get through each chapter, really quickly, just uh, if you turn to page 9 in your book, each chapter has scripture memory, and uh, that'll be just kind of think something you can do on your own. And then on page 10, uh, it'll be a check your progress, and each chapter will have this. Right now, you only have the first three chapters. We're kind of, once we hit chapter 3, we'll be doing it, uh, I'll be handing out the chapters as we go. Uh, really, I think each one of these is good to kind of go through on your own and make sure you understand the material. But for this chapter, for, on page 10... And I think really as you go through every as you go through every chapter, that last question that says, Do you believe that you know this material well enough to teach it to someone else? If not, review it until you do. I would really say that that's that's the important takeaway for each one is do you know the material that we covered in this chapter well enough that you could explain it to uh, you know, a twelve year old or someone a contemporary person of your age? So can you explain it to anybody? You know, and if you can't, make sure you know the material because this is important stuff uh, for you. But uh, it's important as Christians. You know, we have to be. If you if you study out the Bible, the Book of Hebrews, one of the things that the author uh, tells them is that at some point in your your Christian life, you actually need to be teaching this stuff. You should know this stuff in a way that you can teach it to others. So part of the mark of a maturity mature Christian is that you can actually teach it, whether it's your kids whether it's people that you're witnessing to, new believers, um, you know, how, whatever God providentially leads you into, you should be able to teach some of these things, all these things in some way or some fashion uh, to other people. So you really want to kind of be thinking about that. Do I understand this material well enough that I could explain it in a few sentences uh, in an hour to someone else? Uh, so that being said, let's go back to page two and kind of get right into it now. So, starting out, you and God. Scripture is unlike any other book. It's primar- It's not primar- primarily a history book. It's not a rule book. And it's far more than a roadmap for life. So, Pastor Ken, if you've taken his uh, How to Get the Most Out of Your Bible, one of the ways he likes to explain the Bible, it's people and situations before God. So that's kind of his way of describing the Bible. People and situations before God. And... So here it says, Scripture is first and foremost the self-revelation of God. So I'm sure some of you have got heard or maybe thought about the Bible in different ways than what this is saying. You know, when I um, before I was a Christ, became a Christian at 24, so prior to that, I would have just thought that the Bible was like a, a rule book. You know, it's or uh, you know, advice for living a good life. You know, you would, I didn't really understand what the Bible was about. But as we, if you study out your Bible, you you quickly realize, especially if you start in Genesis, it's it's made up of all, all different kinds of genres, all different types of 
uh, books. So you have historical narrative, you have poetry, you have uh, you know doctrinal books, uh, epistles, uh, apocalyptic material in the Book of Revelations. Revelation. So you have uh, all different types of genres in the book, uh, and so we, we, you know, as you try to wrap your mind around why is why is God used all these different types of uh, literature in this book, uh, you know, just thinking about it as a history book or a rule book doesn't make sense. It kind of rules it out really quickly. So uh, as we turn into the material, it's, it's God's autobiography, His communication to mankind about Himself. So we want to begin this series uh, with some foundational truths about God. So it says, God is eternal. We're going to move kind of quick, so we'll make sure we fill in the blanks as we go. God is eternal, without start or end. Uh, it says God is absolutely holy. So he, these are the things that are going to, what we know about God should influence how we live, how we think about ourselves in, in relation to God. Uh, God is absolutely holy. So he's set apart from everything. And that idea of holiness is, in Hebrew means to be set apart. Uh, God is completely sin, sinless and cannot allow sin in his, in his presence. So that's a big one. As we understand why Christ had to die, why we need to accept Christ as Savior, that's a really under, big one. God is completely sinless and cannot allow sin in his presence. God is all-powerful, but God is good. You know, God, God is absolutely just. Everything he does is right, and God is love. Scripture assumes God's existence. So if we start right at Genesis 1.1, and I'll, I'll read that. It says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So in the, in the Hebrew it says, In the beginning, God created. That's how the book starts. Birashit. That's uh, the book. Genesis in Hebrew, that's what it means. That it's basically in the beginning. So it's basically, you know, the title of the book in Hebrew means in the beginning. And it assumes God's, God's existence. It doesn't argue, is there a God? How can we prove God? It just starts with the idea that there is a God. So in the beginning, that's God created. And according to Genesis one twenty-seven, so I'll read that. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So the answer to... Where did we come from? Where does the Bible, where does what I just read say that we came from where? From God. From God, yeah. So it's a simple answer, right? It seems straightforward, but the idea is that we didn't come from some evolutionary process, right? We're not just, we didn't evolve. We weren't, There was no uh, other means by which mankind came into existence. So we came, uh, Adam and Eve were directly created by God. Although it is commonly taught today that mankind is the result of countless years of evolution, Scripture teaches clearly and repeatedly, through him all things were made, without him nothing was made that has been made. And that's from the New Testament. And uh, Psalm 19.1 tells us that the heavens and all creation declare the glory of God. Romans 1.20 concurs, saying that the creation teaches two key lessons about God, that he exists and that he is powerful. It concludes by saying that those who reject God and his creative power are without excuse. <clears throat> the Bible's teaching that you are created by God is not intended merely to solve the question of man's origin. It does answer that question. This is one of the, the you know these fundamental issues of human existence. Why the big questions of life. Where did man come from? Where who, where did I come from? You know, where where does man come from? It does answer that question, but it's not merely intended to, to answer that question. And the implications here that it points out that are important for us to know. First one here on page three. Because God made us, we are accountable to him. And as we go through, you can see these the principal boxes in each section. So if you really want to, if you want to refer back, those kind of encapsulate the last, that, this, uh, the uh, lessons here nicely. So, uh, because God made us, we are accountable to Him. As, as the creation is accountable to the Creator. If you're merely the product of chance, as evolution teaches, you would be your own master. You would be answerable to no one. And that's what if we were to go out and talk to people who are not Christians, uh, in in you know the workplace, our friends, family, uh, in university settings, college classrooms, high school classrooms. 
that's really why they can believe that you know there is no absolute truth. There is no everything is relative because if they evolve, then there is no reason for them to be answerable. Uh, uh, I you know I'm the master of my own destiny. But because we are a creature, you must give an account to the, of your life to the Creator. The Bible records that the time of judgment in Revelations, Revelation 20, 11 through 15, and refers to it as the great white throne. According to verse 12, both the great and the small will appear before God to be judged. And then it's asked, who does that indicate will give answer to God? So when it says great and small, what is it saying? Who... who uh, it says basically everyone. When it refers to the great and small, it's saying everyone will be judged. Hebrews 9.27 Just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment. So, and this is backing up what we just read from the book of uh, Revelation, that uh, we all are on our own facing or to face judgment. So, backing up this idea that because God made us, we're accountable to him. We all are destined for, on our own to judgment. Secondly, though, because we're made by God, he owns us. So Colossians 1.16 teaches that in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth. And it concludes by saying, all things have been created by him and for him. By him and for him. So, Revelation 4.11. You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. So why is God worthy to receive worship, glory, and honor, and power? It's because he created all things. So there's a direct correlation between his His receiving of glory is uh, because he created, he is the creator. And so from this verse, why do we think God created you, you and me? He receives glory uh, to receive glory and honor and power. So for his glory... He created us. So that's an important point uh, as we as we kind of move along. And I don't know if how, if uh, any of you are familiar with the Westminster Confession of Faith. So this is the first question of the Westminster Confession of Faith. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. So He, he made us for Him, for Himself. So God wants to have fellowship with us and to know us. And if we read the account of uh, the account of creation in Genesis one through three, that's what that we would get out of it. As far back as the Garden of Eden, God's pleasure was to walk and talk with His creatures. Just as God was with Adam and Eve in the Garden, He wants you to be with Him in heaven forever. That's the good news. So, sadly, Adam and Eve broke their fellowship with God when they sinned, and because of their sin, you are now a born sinner. So the idea that we all are, uh, as descendants of Adam and Eve, because of their sin, because of Adam's sin, we are now born as, as sinners. <clears throat> so we studied you and God, now we're looking at you and sin. So... Uh, you are not only a sinner by birth, you are a sinner by choice. Uh, do I have, and is there anybody have their Bibles can read Romans 3, 10 through 11? Yeah, 
As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. So, we are sinners by choice. So, that is, none of us seek God out on our own. None of us seek God out on our own. And now, if we were to read Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so, clearly the answer, how many people have sinned? We've all sinned, every one of us. 1 John 3.4 defines sin as breaking God's law. So what is God's law? We talk about God's law. And you try to explain this to somebody. Someone asks you, what are you talking about God's law? Because 30 years ago, 40 years ago, it would be taken for granted that everyone be able, would be able to answer this question pretty straightforward. What is God's law? Nowadays, you can't take that, you can't assume that the person you're speaking with understands what you're talking about when you say God's law. At least, uh, they, you know, you, you might have, you're gonna have to flesh out this idea. So how would you explain, what, what do we mean by God's law? In a conversation, if I say, you know, you, you, we are sinners because we broke God's law, what does that mean? How would you, and the, the person says, well, what are you talking about God's law? What would be the answer? What would you, how would you explain the idea? It's standards in the Bible. standards in the Bible, yep. So that's one way. What if the person, so that, okay, so that, that assumes the person, that for us, that's, that's the clear cut answer. Right, so for someone who believes what the Bible is, that would be, and even if not, I mean, it's still the standard. But, um, what is that? Is there any other way that we can explain it, or any other? Yeah, we disobeyed God. Yeah. So, but how would you explain God's law? So, right. Ten commandments. Ten commandments. So that's another good way. The, I guess the, you could push back and say, how did, so what is Adam's problem? Because Adam broke God's law, and that was way before the Ten Commandments. His word, what he tells us. Right. So that's where we're, really what we're driving at, because it is true. So God's, the Ten Commandments, the Bible, these things are, are true. But, so the person who never has read God's word, that if how do they know that they've broken something? So there has to be there has to be something more inclusive. So God's revealed will, God's will, whether we we all understand that there's a part of it, there's part of God's will, God's revelation of His will that we we've broken. So that was true of Adam. That's true of us today. Uh, so it's it's not just we don't want us to think of it just as like something like the Ten Commandments. It is the Bible, and it is the Ten Commandments. Uh, but it's it's if we follow the timeline of the Bible, God's law has been on one hand as, it, as you move through the Old Testament and expanding, right? Because in, at the time of uh, Abraham, at the time of Noah, as you, these Old Testament prophets, you didn't have these codified law. And then at, by the time Moses comes on the scene, now you have this codified law that is given out first in the the Ten Commandments, but then in the Old Testament law. And then Jesus encaps. How, what does Jesus say about the about God's law? What are the What does he say? What are the two greatest commandments according to Jesus that we were to follow? Love God and love others. And love others. So and then so all of the law hangs on those two points, so that we can see. Uh, we so we just want to make sure we're understanding what we talk about. So if someone pushes back. What is God's law? It, you know. It, God's revealed will, what, what he wants us to know, do, know about him and his, his expectations of us. <clears throat> so give some ex, ex, uh, examples of sin. So 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. 
So we have uh, a partial list there of when we think about sin, sinful behavior uh, that, that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians. So it's popular today to say that people are basically good. So I'm sure most of you guys have heard something like that. You know, people are basically good. We even we hear it in the church. We hear it, you know, as you go out on the street, the news. There's this assumption that, you know, uh, I was just uh, reading an article in, in uh, the BBC, and it was talking about there's this city. It was like one of those 60s kind of like love communities that like someone planted in India, and they're still going. And it's like made up of all these different people from all over the world who go there, and it's like the city. But it, the assumption is that people are basically good. So we just need to recreate society and break down these ideas, these constricting ideas of morals. And if you just let people on their own, they'll, they'll do the right thing. So these, this is kind of like the baseline assumption for a lot of the world religions. People are basically good. If you just let them do their thing, everything will work out. <clears throat> Scripture actually teaches that every man, woman, and child is a sinner. So Jeremiah 17, 9 describes the heart that is deceitful above all things. So every human heart is deceitful above all things. Isaiah 53, 6 summarizes that the sinfulness of all men as intentional and determined rebellion against God. So that's an important uh, point there. Intentional and determined rebellion against God. Like sheep, we have all gone astray from God and chosen our own way rather than his way. The fact that you've... Sin is bad news, but it gets worse. So if we read the following verses, I explain what they teach about the effects of sin. So Isaiah, uh, if anyone can read, Isaiah 59.2. But your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. So this idea of separation from God. Not only has our sin... not only do we sin, which itself is bad news, but that sin has resulted in separation from God. Revelations twenty Revelations, excuse me, Revelation twenty one twenty seven says that it, our sin actually keeps us from heaven. Separation separation from God and it keeps us from heaven. And again, this is one of those things that it pushes back against the world religions because they don't think, you know, your sin you can still potentially get to heaven even if you sin. You just have to make some kind of, you know, atonement. You know, in the religion of Islam, you know, you can you can still get to heaven if you do bad things, if you do X, Y, and Z. You know, all these things. But with the Christian faith, uh, our sin actually keeps us from heaven. Absolutely. Romans six twenty three. So let me read that. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. I want you to think I would have that memorized. Romans 6.23, because you sin, what do we deserve? We all deserve death. So the Bible speaks of two deaths, though. The first is physical death. God promised Adam and Eve that if they sinned, they would certainly die. However, there is a far worse death from physical death, and that is spiritual death. So when we read that narrative... If we, if we were to read the Genesis narrative, God says that they'll die. And the day that they uh, do, you know, break God's law, they will die. Well, they obviously don't die physically. So there had to be, even from the very beginning, uh, some other meaning, some other idea there. And that's the spiritual death. Because of Adam and Eve's sin, they were immediately dead spiritually and would eventually die physically. Before salvation, a person is spiritually dead, even though they are physically alive. When an unbeliever dies physically, he is condemned permanently. How does the Bible describe permanent eternal condemnation in Revelation 20, 14 and 15? Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. <clears throat> so, this lake of fire, he 
permanent eternal condemnation. And up at the top, hell is temporary. So Revelation 20.14 says that hell will one day be cast into the lake of fire. So hell is a terrible but temporary place of judgment. And that temporary is an important part to remember. Temporary place, place of judgment where sinners await the great white throne judgment. It could be compared to a, uh, a county jail where criminals await trial. I don't know if I agree with that, but it's the idea of temporary is important. However, following the, the trial of sinners at the great white throne, they'll be cast into hell, with hell, into the lake of fire, a place of eternal torment. Those who go to hell at their death will be punished in the lake of fire for eternity. So the truth of eternal damnation is hard for most people to swallow, but the Bible teaches that everyone who has sinned deserves to be punished for that sin forever in the lake of fire. Many people think that hell is Hades, so in the Bible, when we talk about hell, the, the word is often Hades, that temporary place, and the lake of fire just for men like Hitler or Charles Manson. But the Bible says that hell is not just for murderers, it is for sinners. So, any infraction against God's law, this is the result. The fact is, because you sin, you deserve to be punished for eternity in the lake of fire. So that's not just bad news, it's terrible news. Right? It's, it's tragic news. Many people try to compensate for their sin by doing good works. They reason that if they do more good things than bad, they'll go to heaven. This idea of balances, right? We do, if the good outweighs the bad, then you know, somehow we'll get into heaven. The problem is that scripture teaches that no one can earn heaven. Romans 6.23 teaches that eternal life with God in heaven is a gift. So, by its very nature, can you earn a gift? So a gift is something that's free, something that is unmerited. The Bible teaches that salvation (coughs) is by grace. So the idea of grace is undeserved or unmerited kindness through faith that is trusting God. So what does verse 9 say? What does it mean? Basically, since it's a gift, we can't claim we deserve or we merit it. We can't just say that we actually deserve this gift of uh, this gift because that actually is not something that defeats the whole point of having of calling it a gift, right? So what are some things that people try to do to earn heaven? So what if, uh, you know, if you were to... What are some things that you've witnessed or you've talked to people they try to do to earn heaven, earn their way into heaven? Go to church. Go to church, absolutely, yeah. Help other people. Help other people. So people like Mother, I mean, not questioning if Mother Teresa is the same person, but it's that type of idea. Serve the poor, commit your life to some some charity, some charitable organization, uh, helping people. Puritan ethic. What's that? Puritan ethic. Puritan ethic. So right, exactly. So for some of us, can you? What is when you say that? Are you? I work very hard. I, I, you know, I, I work very hard. Yeah. I keep my nose to the grindstone. Yep. And that was a that was a a big part of the founding of this country, and in particular colonies of this country, was a really big aspect, you know, this idea that uh, the purity of, of work, you know, working hard and what it did for the human human soul. And not just in the Christian faith. So even in places, you know, we talk about Islam. You know, they can get people to do horrendous things in a religion like Islam because they're saying you can earn heaven by doing this. You know, regardless of what you've done in the past, regardless of the kind of life you've lived, if you do this, you can get your, yourself into heaven. So there's a whole list of, that we can think of that people try to do to earn heaven, you know. And uh, what we're saying here is that obviously, since it's a gift, we can't earn it. So the so fa- so far, the news has been very bad. We've all sinned. Because of that sin, we deserve judgment. Further, there's nothing we can do to earn salvation. If that were all the scripture said, it would be a tragic book. Thankfully, it goes on. The Bible says that God made a way for you and all other sinners to avoid the lake of fire. You deserve hell. We're destined for hell because of what we've done, because of our willful disobedience against God. But you don't have to go there, and that is that is the greatness. So, 
moving on to the you and Jesus. The Bible has much to say about who Jesus is. So it says that God, he, that is Jesus, is eternal. Uh, let me just read the first three verses of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. <clears throat> so, he is eternal, he is God, he's equal with God, he is the creator. So it says all things were made by him. He became flesh. So if, what is, how would you, how do you understand that idea that he became flesh? What does it mean? Yeah. No. Yeah. So he became human, right? Yeah. And that he's absolutely sinless. But we don't want to think. So you want to make sure you understand it correctly, because none none of those things takes away from any of the others. So he is eternal. He's God. He's also fully human. So being, he didn't stop becoming God to become man. He didn't become less God to become man. So he's uh, still equal with God and still fully man. Turning to page 6 then. So Romans 5.8 teaches something else about Jesus. It says that he loves us, his creatures. How did he demonstrate that love for us? It says that he died for us. So most people know that Jesus died, but very few people understand why he died. So 1 Peter 3.18 answers that question. For Christ also suffered once for sins the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. It says, Christ also suffered once for sins. When did he do that? Yeah, obviously, he died when he died on the cross. The Cal- died on Calvary. Since scripture teaches that Jesus never sinned, for whose sin then did he die? Our sins, right? Yeah. So he died for he died for sinners. He died for us. So First Peter three eighteen again teaches that Christ died the righteous for the unrighteous. And who is the righteous one? Obviously Jesus. Who are the unrighteous ones? Those that's us. And we don't want to miss this important point. Jesus died for you and me. He was our substitute. He paid the penalty that we deserve. If we remember Romans six twenty three, because of sin. We all deserve death. Jesus paid that penalty by dying on the cross. Instead of uh, you paying for your sins, your sins in the lake of fire for eternity, Jesus suffered death one time on Calvary. He paid for yours, your sins and my sins. Now looking back at 1 Peter 3.18, as I just read, what great news. Jesus died to pay for your sins so that you can avoid hell and enjoy heaven with him. So, when we sometimes hear uh, other religions or people talk about Jesus, you know, he was a good, you know, yeah, Jesus, you know, he was a good guy, he was a good teacher, he lived a good life. You know, Islam will talk about uh, Jesus as a virtuous person, that he was sinless, and he didn't do anything wrong, you know, he was a great teacher. Why, when we have to, but that's not enough, right? We have to make sure that we understand that he's actually more than just a good teacher, more than just a good person, more than just a virtuous person. We have to make sure we understand uh, that who he is is tied up with what he did for us. The story is told of two brothers. We're going to skip that. We're almost out of time. The Bible teaches that you will live somewhere forever. So that is... The third topic here. So we're... The Bible teaches that you will live somewhere forever, either in heaven or the lake of fire. Jesus died to allow you to go to heaven. Although people teach that there are many ways to heaven, the Bible teaches that there is only one way. So if we were to read John fourteen six to find out what that is, uh, we would understand that that's through Christ alone. Jesus is offering a tremendous gift, freedom from hell and eternity in heaven. Sadly, many people reject Jesus and his offer of salvation. Instead of rejecting Christ, John 1.12 instructs you to receive him. The key question is this, how can 
you receive Jesus Christ and his gift of salvation. So there's simultaneous aspects of receiving Christ. So these are the two points that we need to understand with salvation. What do we need to, what do we need to be saved? First part is you must repent of your sins. So repentance. You have offended God by sinning. You now need to turn away from sin and to God. That is what scripture calls repentance. So turning away from sin and turning to God. The idea of a 180 degree turn. So you're turning away from your former life. Remember, you cannot earn heaven. So it's not, we're not doing this so that we can actually earn heaven. Repentance is changing your mind about God and sin. It is desiring God instead of your sin. So C.S. Lewis puts it this way. Fallen man is not simply an imperfect creature who needs improvement. He is a rebel who must lay down his arms. This process of surrender is what Christians call repentance. <clears throat> so what does Acts 3.19 require for your sins to be forgiven? Does anyone, can someone read Acts 3.19? Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Thank you. So, repent and then turn to God. So those are the, uh, the idea we want to really make sure you understand that. 1 Thessalonians 1 <coughs> defines repentance and conversion as turning to God from idols. Turning to God from idols. Indeed, the very move towards Christ demands a, a move away from sin and idols. Christ replaces your way. He will not merely, he will not be merely added to it. So you don't add Christ into your life. You don't continue on with your formal manner of life and just add Jesus into that mix, right? So it's, you're actually replacing that old way. You're turning 180 degrees and following Christ at that point. <clears throat> Matthew one twenty one. From what does Jesus save you? It saves us from our sins. So there are some people who believe they are forgiven, yet have never turned from sin. They believe that they have the best of both worlds. They can bear hug their sin and refuse to let it go. Then they can go to heaven. According to Matthew one twenty one, Christ saves his people from sin, not just hell. So this is an important point. Anyone who has not repented their sin has not been saved. That is not to say that a saved person will not struggle with sin. However, a saved person has changed their mind about sin. They may struggle with it, but they don't relish it. And this is something a lot of early new believers struggle with. I mean, this is something I struggle with. You know, you doubt, you'll doubt your salvation because, you know, you're still struggling. But that, that point where he says, we've changed our mind about sin. So it's not the fact that we're struggling with sin. It's that we actually realize it's the struggle, the internal struggle we have because of the sin, where before we would live that life and we had no problem. Now we are starting, you know, we're still struggling with those old sins that we had before, but, you know, it's actually causing us, uh, you know, this internal conflict. Because we've changed our mind, Christ has changed us and our, our, uh, our mind about sin. So Isaiah 55, 7, 55, 7 gives a clear picture of repentance. If we were to explain it, it would be forsaking of the previous manner of life. So it's the forsaking, the turning away from the previous manner of life. If you have not yet turned away from your wicked way, you have not been saved. And again, this doesn't mean that we're sinless. It doesn't mean that you're living a sin-free life. It means that you know your attitude towards sin has changed and that you're actually uh, beginning to uh, fo- you know, make, fo- make following Christ a priority. So, turning, the first point is you must repent of your sin. The second point, you must trust in Christ alone. So, John 3.16, we all probably have heard that verse. Most of us could probably recite it pretty quickly. It's probably the most well-known verse of the Bible. It teaches that you must believe in Jesus. That means more than just acknowledging that he lived and died. The Bible word believes... Believe means to be convinced, to trust, to place your faith in someone. You must realize that Jesus is your only hope of going to heaven and place your faith completely in him. Not Jesus in good works, not Jesus in baptism, not Jesus in church, Jesus alone. And we talked a little bit about that, you know, the idea that, well, I need to go, you know, I'm trusting, I go to church every day, you know, every Sunday I'm in church. And, you know, so that becomes, it's, you know, you're adding in to trusting Jesus there. 
So this is a nice way of thinking of the two sides of the same coin. So faith and repentance. And that's a lot of times how you hear. Faith and repentance, two sides of the same coin of trusting Jesus. Genuine faith includes repentance, and genuine repentance includes faith. So you think of it this way. Uh, it's either our way or God's way. So Isaiah 55, 7 pictures you as a rebel who insists on going your own way, the exact opposite of God's way. But then instructs you to forsake your way and return to the Lord. So this 180 degree turn from our own way it's back to God's way. <clears throat> any questions? Again, if there's any questions, comments uh, along the way, don't don't hesitate to stop. Stop me. In Acts 16.30, a sinful man asked the Apostle Paul and Silas a vital question. What must I do to be saved? What was their simple answer in 16.31 is that believe in the Lord Jesus. So, to be saved, believe in the Lord Jesus. If we read John 3.36, it would tell us... Uh, well, actually, let me just read before I get John 3.36, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains in him, on him. Amen. Notice that the Bible divides all of humanity into two groups. There is no middle ground. How do these two groups respond to Christ? So either belief in him or rejection, rejection, rejecting him. <coughs> what happens to each of these groups? So the belief, you know, it's either eternal life or the, they suffer God's wrath, the second death. You obviously don't want to be the object of God's wrath. So Romans tells us... <coughs> requires us of us to be saved. What is Romans there in chapter 10? So if we confess the Lord Jesus, confess Jesus as Lord, and we believe in our heart, we call out to him. Paul tells us that's how we will be saved. So the only way to call upon the name of the Lord is to speak to him in prayer. Many have asked Jesus Christ to be their Savior. According to 1 John 5.13, those people know that they have eternal life. Do you have assurance if you have never trusted Jesus as your Savior, you can do it now where, right where you are? And there's that, uh, just some brief sample prayer. Once you have trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you're now a Christian, and it's essential that you mature in this relationship with Christ. So that's the important part here as we're wrapping up this lesson. It's essential that we mature in our relationship with Christ. It's not. It's one thing to be saved, but if Jesus is Lord, if everything Jesus, what we're reading in Scripture is true, then He didn't just save us. He, sorry, he saved us from our sin. So there needs to be, start now being some evidence of that spiritual life that we've that we've been given. So these key steps in that direction. Although you're a Christian, you'll still struggle with sin, and that's sometimes the hardest thing for a new believer. So as we're taking this class as this foundation class, you know, it's good for you to know to remember. Because we all struggle with sins, though. But it's also good as you maybe run into people who are new believers. It's a good way to reassure that person. We all are going to keep struggling with sin. Sin will not remove you from God's family, but it will hinder your communion with God. Therefore, you should confess your sin directly to God as soon as you are aware of it. This matter will be dealt with in greater in chapter 3. So we will, a lot of these things, as it says, will... We'll, hit on more. So, we still struggle with sin, but we need to re begin reading our Bible. A good place to start is the book of John. I remember when I first, before I became a Christian, uh, I remember my mom gave me a Bible, and I kept trying to read it from the very beginning, just like you would a, a regular book, right? So you grab the book, you open it up, you start reading Genesis, and by like chapter 5, you're like, what am I reading? And you just put it down. So, uh, this is good advice, not just for all, you know, for us, who maybe are struggling with reading the Bible, but it's good advice for someone who is a new believer. Start in the New Testament. Start reading in, in uh, the book of John, for instance, the book of Mark. Start reading in the Gospels. Don't necessarily start in the Old Testament, right from the beginning. Make notes of who Jesus is, what he did, what he's done for you. The importance of immersing yourself in the Word of God we'll address later. So get involved in a church that faithfully preaches the Bible. So most of you, that's that's a given. We're, we're here. You're here. Uh, you know, almost all of you. I think most of you are, are pretty involved. 
Begin memorizing God's word on your own. So memorizing scripture will help you to better understand it, will prepare you to share it with others, and will help protect you from error and sin. So it gives, as I said, each chapter will have a couple verses to memorize. Uh, and scripture memorization is something that's it's good. It's a good practice. It's a good uh, skill. Uh, but it's something you have to cultivate. It's not a given. But uh, especially for a new believer, again, uh, for most of you, some of you, this is, you know, this is where you're at. But for some of you, is the people, you know, you may run into people who are new believers, and without memorizing God's word, you're not, you're not training your mind. So Paul talks about the renewing of the mind. Part of renewing that mind is actually replacing those things from your old life with, with God's word. So that when those, when situations occur, when something happens, that's what, that's what happens to your mind. That's what comes into your head. Uh, you know, our struggle with sin, you can't be, you're not going to be successful when you struggle against sin by just saying, by just trying harder. You know, we've talked about, I, I, you know, if you're driving down Ford Street, and I've talked about this before, if you're driving down Ford Street and, you, you know, you give the guy, give someone the bird to just cut you off, you know, and you think, I can't believe I just did that, i got to stop doing that. <coughs> And then it's going to happen again pretty quickly, right? Because that's where we are. And we can't do it on our own. We can't do it, be successful by just trying harder. So we, we need to cultivate these Christian disciplines. Uh, the renewing of the mind, memorizing God's word, getting involved, being accountable to people around you in your, in your local church. Staying in God's word. And then just remembering, we all struggle with sin. So it's not something, it's not something to be surprised about, but it is something we need to think seriously about. So, these are the, as we wrap up this chapter, so the important, as we looked at that, check your progress, and I said, do you believe you know this material well enough to teach it to someone else? So when we think about this chapter, how we can think about it is, you know, the, the three major topics, that first question, the three most significant lessons you learned in this Bible study. We can break it down. You know, God, our expectations, God has expectations of us, what our sin has done, and then what Jesus has provided and our, our response to him. So kind of, if we were to break it up in, into like threes, here, so one. You know, our... So this is a way that you can kind of try to, if you want to try to remember it, try to, so that you can explain to somebody, God, uh, man, and our, his sin, Jesus, and the salvation that we, he provides in our, our, uh, well, how we need to respond to him in, in repentance and faith. Uh, so those are kind of, you know, a way for you to remember what's going on. Any questions, any, uh, pushback on anything I said? I have a question as in relation to children, whether your own child or in, like helping a child at church. Yeah. Um, do you have a way of explaining to them that it doesn't? They don't have to pray just the right words. That that you know the. For example, my youngest, he'll every so often he'll be afraid he didn't do the right yeah. thing, didn't say the right words. Is that what I did, mom? And I try to explain to him, Kyle doesn't give us an exact prayer. You know, and we go go through, and he's like, but is, and he, I mean, one night we went around for like 30, 45 minutes, and then he said, but is that what I did? And I don't know, you know, I'm like, well, you know, you said that you believe Jesus, and you yeah. said that you were asking him to forgive you, of your, and then, so I said, so yes, but, and then he was like, so relieved, but I was, you know, especially for those kids who are, um, Perfectionist, I guess, or they're afraid that they didn't do it just right. Yeah. Do you have any suggestions? Well, I, I think I don't think it, even you can even expand it because I don't think it's just kids. I think a lot of people did I do it the right way? Did I pray the right way? You know, so I, your, your point is well taken, but I think a lot a lot of people will struggle with, you know, and and that, and that partially is a result of the fact how how for you know the last thirty years. Uh, what in certain circles, Christian circles, there was pray the sinner's prayer. Mm-hmm. You know, walk the Romans road and do these things. And if you do them the right way and say these things the right way, 
you know, and you write the date in your Bible, and you're all good, you know, and then you move on. But, you know, so your point is, it's well taken, because adults have struggled with this, that uh, do it just right, you know, I don't know, maybe I didn't, I did something wrong, and for a, a young person, a child, who, you know, doesn't have the intellectual, maybe, uh, the, the, you know, the intellectual ability of an adult, it can be even more of a crisis. Mm-hmm. So, uh, well, what have any of you else, have any of you guys struggled with, or, you know, come across something like that? Maybe not struggle with a person, but anybody else have come across something like that in your lives and people you know? I mean, I struggle with something like that. Yeah, my, my, own my son does that too. Yeah. He, he gets nervous about that. And when he's done something wrong and I try to walk him through confessing his sin and yeah. asking for forgiveness, you know, he gets very scared. Like, what if, you know, what if I am not going to go to heaven? What if I, you know, I ask God to help me to stop doing it, but he, he won't help me stop. You know, I keep yeah. doing it. And I said, well, you have choice too, you know. So yeah. kids, I think they're just still figuring it all out. They're still really young, yeah. you know, morally and mentally. And yeah. Well, and so that actually highlights, that's two examples right here sitting with us that highlights why we need to make sure we understand this material, right? Mm-hmm. Because most of us are going to run across it at some point in our life, in our lives. It's going to show up somewhere, you know? It's going to show up. So we want to make sure we can understand the material and explain it in a way that people can understand it, not just in an intellectual fashion, you know, like, you know, sitting in a classroom, well, let me... You know, let me talk to you in a in a seminary level discussion, and you know, mm-hmm. if you don't get it, then there's something wrong. No, it's how do we we need to understand it and explain it. So one of the ways is that we can say, well, we can walk through some passages in the New Testament that say that we're a person we know, where the Bible shows that this person was actually saved. So one of the first ones that comes to mind is when Jesus is on the cross, right? Mm-hmm. And he he talks to one of the the criminals on the cross. And that guy didn't pray a prayer. He didn't say uh, uh, any kind of... He just, you know, he confessed that Jesus is Lord, and then that was it. He didn't get baptized. He didn't do any good works. He didn't have a chance to do anything to follow up on that, to show that faith. But he had it, you know, obviously Jesus could tell his faith was genuine. And so right there, you know, so that's one example right from Jesus's, right there from, you know, when Jesus is on the cross... And so we can go through the New Testament and, get, and begin looking at some of those examples of a person, uh, you know, because a lot of times, well, I wasn't baptized. Do I need to be baptized? If I don't get baptized or I don't do this, am I still going to heaven? You know, so you can begin looking at, you know, Philip and the eunuch. You can look at some of these other examples of Paul, you know, what Paul did in his, some of his ministries, the Philippian jailer, all these things. How did they, what, what was their... What did they say? What does the Bible record with these reaction, these interactions between the apostle or with Jesus or with someone else and this person to give us insight into what, how they were, what happened there? You know, did they pray a prayer? You're right. You know, there's no record of a sinner's prayer where in the Bible. So, you know, so a lot of times that actually is misleading for or confusing for someone, uh, you know, to think, I, I have to, you know, and so we even have to watch our language. You know, it's more, what is the idea of salvation, repentance and faith? Do you have a heartfelt sorrow for your sins? Do you, are you, do you believe that Jesus died for your, you know, for you, and that if you trust him, you know, and that's it. You know, we, we leave it at that. You know, we don't need to, uh, and, but, and then reminding that person, holding that person accountable, say, well, you know, if you trust, if you trust the Lord, then, and you have the spiritual life, there should be some evidence now. So we have to we have to work on that, you know, and doing it in a way that's appropriate for a child, not making them feel guilty or making them doubt their salvation, because we're actually going to get it. So the next topic, eternal security, actually, we'll talk about some of the ways that we can know that we have and trust that our salvation is secure with God. So it's a good good point, and I, I think that, like I said, it's a good illustration why we need to make sure we understand this material. Any other questions or pushback? Anything to add to that? Again, feel free to uh, to have some comments or, or pushback if there's something I feel that's confusing or needs to be clarified. So that's it for today. We already are five minutes over, so let me close this in prayer. And uh, thanks for all for being here. Lord God, we, uh, we just thank you. We thank you for the gift of 
grace of eternal life through our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for your uh, saving us, and uh, we thank you that we can call you Father, that we can look forward to heaven and eternity with you. We pray that you would help us to know this material, to live it out, to share it with others when we have opportunity. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.